You know what, there's, uh, there's some things in life that just seem to really go together. Uh, they go together really, really well. They complement one another. Um, for example, strawberries and cream. Yeah, stra- there's something about strawberries and cream. Um, strawberries are all right on their own. Cream is, well, not that great on its own. It's all right. But strawberries and cream together, not bad. You know, it's a good combination. Um, or uh, sun, sea, and sand. You know, all those three things are great, um, but if I just brought in a big pile of sand in here now, you'd be like, yeah, whatever. Um, but if you mix it with sea and the sun, you know, there's something about that, those three things coming together, they complement one another. Or um, what about the cinema and popcorn? They, they just seem to somehow work. Uh, I don't know about you, but I never eat popcorn uh, just as a general snack. I never like pass the, sh- the shop and go, oh, I just fancy some popcorn. But when I'm at the cinema, um, popcorn is the thing that I want. You know, they seem to go together. Some things are just very complimentary. Um, but there's sometimes there's some things that are the opposite. They are really not complimentary at all. They, they, they are just like chalk and cheese. Um, for example, chalk and cheese, right? You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to have a chalky, cheesy sandwich before. I haven't personally, but, uh, you know, I can, I can imagine it's not worth trying. You know, they just don't seem to go together. Um, I'm sure you can think of lots of things that don't go together. Maybe you can think of people that don't go together. Um, have you ever had that situation? Um, maybe any of you who've ever um, like organized a big party or a shindig or something or some sort of big thing, and suddenly you go down the guest list and where everyone's sitting and you go, oh no, oh no. Auntie Audrey is sat next to Uncle Bob. Uh-oh, there's gonna be fireworks. You know, some people just don't seem to, to go together. Some things aren't complimentary. Now, the interesting thing is sometimes you can get some things that are seemingly opposite, that couldn't possibly go together, and yet when you bring them together, they create something actually new, something powerful. Now, the linguistic term for this, if you're interested, is called an oxymoron. You ever heard that term, oxymoron? Yeah, it's not, it's not like an idiot with acne or anything. An oxymoron is, um, the idea of this word is that it's, 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 it's two things that seem opposite, when you bring them together, it expresses something quite powerful. For example, um, the word oxymoron, uh, it's Greek. Uh, oxy means sharp, moros means dull. So it sounds like, you know, sharp and dull. That's a contradiction in terms. But let me give you an example of an oxymoron. If I was to tell you this morning that um, oh, I went somewhere yesterday and I turned up and there was a deafening silence, you'd know exactly what I meant. Even though deafening and silence do not go together, but somehow they're opposites, but when you put them together, they somehow express something new, something um, very powerful, a deafening silence. Jesus talked quite a lot in these sort of oxymorons. He came, came out with things that seemed to be contradictory, but when he said them together, they, they actually said something very powerful. For example, he said things like, the first shall be last. Yeah, yeah and the last shall be first. It's like two opposites. And yet bring them together, he actually, they make sense in the kingdom of God. He said things like, we get by giving. He said that he talks about, um, you know, we, when we really, we'll really learn to live when we learn to die to ourselves. And it sounds like, hey, that doesn't make sense. But in the kingdom of God, they, they seem to work together. This morning, I want to explore a very major oxymoron that occurs in this passage. Two things that seem to be completely opposite and yet. God is able to bring them together. Um, And it's this, that a holy God can team up with a wicked sinner. And I mean wicked in the sort of classic dictionary term of like a horrible, nasty type. 
wicked sinner. A holy God can use a wicked sinner. Now, because think about it, holy, um, I've mentioned this already before here, uh, holy, uh, the word means um, different. It's like different, like sometimes we think holy means like, oh, all this. Like the word holy actually talks about difference and that, and that um, God is holy because he's different to us in the sense that he is absolutely perfect, never done a thing wrong, he's never missed the mark. A holy God, how could a holy God ever work well with a wicked sinner like Saul? That's what we're going to explore together. Because Saul, to be fair, is a right nasty piece of work. He's, a, he's not a very nice guy. Uh, he did horrible things um, to the early Christian church. He, um, he, was, he actually called himself the worst of sinners later when he became a Christian. He, he, he described himself as the very worst of sinners. Now historians say that Paul, uh, Saul, who was also known as Paul, by the way, he just had that name. Sometimes he was Saul, sometimes he was Paul. I used to think when he became a Christian, he had his name changed. But actually, apparently, when I've been reading about it, he was known as both names. But later, people used the name Paul. But he'd already sometimes been called Paul before that, if you're interested in that. Um, but anyway, historians say that Saul was like the arch enemy of the Christian church. He was like the... the, the the, the arch nemesis, if you imagine Superman and Lex Luthor, right? Or if you imagine Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Moriarty or, you know, any sort of arch enemy. Saul was the arch enemy of the Christian church. He was out to destroy Christians and Christianity and everyone knew it. I mean, look at verse one. How is he described at the very beginning? He's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I mean, it almost sounds like a pantomime. You want to go, boo, nasty Saul, but actually... This is serious. It would be, it, would, it might sound like a pantomime, but actually this guy is an absolute religious terrorist. He is wanting to bring down the Christian faith. Now, what is Saul's problem? We might want to ask, what's a big deal? Is he just a grumpy bloke? Has he got reasons for this? Well, why did he have it in for Christians? Well, we have to explore Saul's upbringing a little bit. Now, Saul was uh, brought up in a place called Tarsus. Uh, he had a really wealthy family of uh, Pharisees, like religious leaders, and they taught him really well in the, in the Jewish faith. But they taught him so, um, so much about the Jewish faith, they would say that actually, Saul, you're not to, when you're a little kid, you know, saying, you're not to play with anyone who isn't a Jew. Because if you do that, they're called Gentiles. Um, if you do that, you know, you're going to somehow get contaminated. So he, was, he would, already as he's grown up, he would not have a, a very good opinion of people who were not Jewish. And by the time he was about 13, um, he would really know all Jewish history. He would know the uh, scriptures really well. He uh, goes to move to Palestine for the next five or six years. He studies under a rabbi called Gamaliel. Uh, we talked about him last week. And he becomes, a, he becomes this really skilled rabbi. And he's uh, protecting the law of Moses. Um, because he knows the Old Testament so well, so he knows the, the Jewish faith, he knows that there will, a Messiah will come a savior of the world to, to, to set people free. Problem was, the Christians are all running around going, it's Jesus. They're all claiming that Jesus is this Messiah that they've all been hoping for. Saul comes along and says, I, I, I don't think so. No way. I don't believe it. I do not think Jesus is this Messiah. A lot of people have that same reaction today. You know, you might tell them about Jesus being the savior of the world and they might say, well, I don't believe that. Or usually, the more, more often is the case, people might just go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> that's nice for you, but you know, that's not my thing. Well, Saul did not say whatever. What Saul said was, this guy, Jesus was a false prophet. He deserved to die on the cross. And anyone who follows him needs to be wiped out. 
he was very much um, a, a threat against um, Christians. The thing about Saul is, though, he was sincerely believing he was serving God. He was sincere in that. He sincerely thought he was doing the right thing, but he was just sincerely maybe serving God in a wrong way. He sincerely had got it wrong. Now, Saul had head knowledge, but he didn't have the heart knowledge of meeting with God. You know, it's possible to be sincerely wrong. We talked about this a little bit at the prayer group on Friday. Like, sincerity doesn't make something right. Um, for example, I could be standing here now and I could see everyone. Guess what? I'm pregnant. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You know, spread the news. I'm going to have a baby. And you'd be like, I don't think so. But I could be so sincere that you could say, look, i tell you what, you bring in a lie detector test, a polygraph test, hook me up to it, and I could pass that test with flying colors if I was sincere enough and I really believed it with all my heart and soul and strength. But I still wouldn't be pregnant, would I? You know, you can be sincerely wrong. Saul was sincere about God, but he was just finding God in the wrong place. But this was all about to change. This relationship with God that he didn't have, it all changed when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And one of the things that he realizes is his sin. He realizes that he is a sinner. Now, um, when he realizes that, it's the sort of first step in a way to, to being transformed. Um, he, he must have realized all of the nasty stuff he'd been doing to Christians and Jesus comes out and says, why are you persecuting me? You know, one of the first steps in becoming a Christian is to realize our sin. Now, people like, it's not very nice, is it, to think of yourself as a sinner? Like, it's not a very pleasant name. It's not on the, on the list of baby names, right? It's not exactly high on the list. You know, oh, I think I'll call him sinner. You know, it's a, a very unpleasant name. And nobody likes the idea of being called a sinner. But the fact is, the Bible is pretty clear. Is that all humans are sinners? In fact, it says about like, we might, we might sit there and say, hey, I'm no Saul. You know, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't done anything like that. I'm not really a sinner. But the Bible is really clear. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says that um, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I want to camp out in that verse for a second. What does it mean to all fall short of the glory of God? Um, well, let's explore what we mean by sin. Um, sometimes we get the idea that sin is like, uh, is the little things we do. So if you steal a pen from a shop, then you've committed a sin. You steal another pen, you've committed two sins. If you murder someone, you've committed a really, really bad sin, or one that God wouldn't be happy with, you know? You can have that sort of impression. But actually the word sin is different. The word sin means to miss the mark. The word sin talks about when we miss the mark. They used to use this phrase in archery. I don't know if you knew that. Um, when people used to go do archery and they would um, shoot their um, arrow to the target. And if they missed the target, it would be called a sin. So in this, oh, I've missed the target. It's a sin. That was a sporting term for it. And that's what it means to miss the target. And if in archery you miss the target by one centimeter or you miss the target by a mile, the fact is you've missed the target. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the whole point. You know, we might, you might be a really nice person. It's great. You know, it might have been a lovely life. You've done some lovely things in your life and helped people out and not murdered anyone and all that sort of stuff. That's wonderful. Or maybe you are a mass killer and you've killed loads of people. The fact is that you might be different as far as like some of the sins you might have committed. But the fact is, everyone has missed the mark. None of us are perfect. None of us have hit that target. You know, it's like if you miss the bus by one minute, or you miss the bus by one month, you still miss the bus. You know? 
So you ought to catch the train. Yeah, yeah, good advice. So we've, we've missed the target. We've missed the target. So what is this? You might be thinking, well, what is this target we're supposed to hit? Let's explore that. The target that we're supposed to hit is the glory of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the, that's the idea that we're supposed to hit. Um, and the glory of God describes God's character. We're all supposed to be, we're made in his image. We're supposed to actually reflect God's character perfectly. Jesus was the only one who ever did that perfectly. You know, Hebrews uh, th- uh, 1.3 said, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. That's the special thing about Jesus. He is, you know, God perfectly displayed. He's perfect. He never sinned once. He never missed the mark. So for us, the character of Jesus is the target. Now, if you put it that way, n- nobody, is, nobody has hit that. I mean, if I asked you the question, are you, are you as perfect as Jesus Christ was, then you're in trouble, aren't you? I certainly am. No way. Absolutely no way. I've really missed the mark. You know, Mother Teresa, lovely woman, did some amazing things, but she did not ever. You know, she did put a foot wrong, I'm sure. At some time, she would have had a selfish thought. At some time, she might have done something. She might have been sharp with someone. She was never exactly as perfect as Jesus. And when the benchmark is Jesus, this is a problem because none of us can reach this. None of us can be like him on our own in our own strength. None of us gets a perfect score. And you know what happens? Because of this sin, it puts a barrier between us and God. In fact, it puts, if you imagine like the Grand Canyon and you've got God sat on one side and us on the other, it's not so much a Grand Canyon, it's the Grim Canyon. We're on this massive canyon and some some of you can feel it. I certainly have, have felt it before. You know, when I was growing up, wasn't really interested in Christianity or anything. And you can just sense God is distant. You know, God is, there's something blocking me and God, the Grim Canyon. Maybe you can feel that gulf this morning. So it's bad news. (laughs) The idea that we're sinners and uh, we're separated from God. But there's good news. The good news is that God made you and he loves you. And he absolutely refuses to let, you, let the story end on that grim canyon. He refuses. He says, no, I'm going to do all that's within my power. And he's pretty powerful <laughs> to get a way back for you. You know, if you look at Saul, it's amazing to think that he was not out that day searching for Jesus, was he? He was out searching for Christians to kill them and hurt them and, and, and persecute them. He wasn't looking for Jesus. But what happens? Jesus is looking for him. Jesus meets him on that road. You know, sometimes we get the idea that God is like playing hard to get. We get this, and have you ever felt that way? God is like this, 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 this big thing up on a, on a big mountain and we have to try and strive to get to and we have to be good people and we have to do all this nice stuff and maybe one day I might be able to prove myself to be lovable by God. And that's actually what many other religions might suggest, this idea that we earn our way into God's presence. But the picture in Christianity couldn't be more different. It's absolutely different. It is God that pursues you. It is God that pursues us. The Bible says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In fact, God is always seeking us. He's always in the business of looking for us, no matter how far you've run from him, no matter how far you've run from God, he's only one step to go back to him. You know, some of you here might think that uh, you're beyond help. (laughs) 
Sometimes you might, you might think sometimes in your life, you know, actually, I'm one of those people that God's not going to actually love. Maybe you've got friends who you want to share your faith with and, you, and they might come at you like that. Look, I'm, I've, gone, I've gone too far that way. Nobody is beyond help. History is full of lost and broken people who've been found by God. Let me read this to you. Um, a man called Mel Trotter lived in the early part of the 20th century. He was an alcoholic who again and again promised his wife that he would give up drink for good. Once he managed to stay dry for 11 and a half weeks, but at the end, the drink overcame him. He sold their horse to pay for another round of drinks and he reached the point that he committed burglary to feed his habit. And his wife and child suffered terribly for it, going without food. And since he wasted his income on booze, the money was gone. Now when their son was about two years old, Trotter came home from another drinking spree and found the son dead in his mother's arms. He died uh, perhaps of malnutrition or something like that. He put his arms around his wife, apologized profusely, and he said, actually, at the funeral of the little boy, put his hand on the coffin, and he swore on his baby's coffin, I will never do this again. I won't touch another drop again. Two hours after the funeral, he staggered home, blind drunk. He'd stolen the shoes off his little boy's lifeless body and sold them for drink. Weeks later, he just realized, God, what have I done? I have so missed the mark. Sometimes in our lives, we get to a point where we think, I've just gone too far. I've went over the edge. He realized through his own deliberate fault, yes, uh, through the pressures of life, make, help, making him, pushing him into bad choices, he decided to end his life. And on January the 19th, 1897, he walked to Lake Michigan. He was going to throw himself in that lake, freezing waters to kill him, to drown. And on the way, as he was going, he passed by the door of the Pacific Garden Mission. And he just thought, I'll just pop my head in, see what this is. Something was drawing him there. God was seeking him. He went in, he saw a bloke stand up at the front called Harry Monroe. Harry Monroe told about how he had been set free by God from the addiction to alcoholism and that his life had changed and that now God had found him and it allowed himself to be found. And Trotter decided there and then, he says, God, forgive me. He allowed himself to be found by God and he didn't kill himself. Uh, God actually ended up using him to found 60 other rescue missions across America. He became a supervisor of chains of these missions to, from Boston to San Francisco, helping others find the God who was seeking him. You know, someone like that, you think, God, oh, how could someone do that? God is seeking everybody. You see, God is pursuing his people because he's got a purpose for us. You know, people who are lost and broken and sinful, like me, like you. God had been pursuing a relationship with Saul all his life. Saul was about the same age as Jesus, so Saul would have bound to have gone out and actually seen Jesus physically, you know, seen him preaching and stuff like that. Saul had resisted him until now on the Damascus Road. Saul says, you know what, I'm going to let myself be found. You know, I've got news for you this morning. Uh, Jesus is seeking you. <laughs> He's seeking you. He loves you. He's seeking you to tell you some bad news and good news. Bad news is, yeah, we're sinners. And without God, we cannot cross that grim canyon. Nothing we can do. We can try, we can give money to charity, we can do nice things, we can help people across the road. But it's like running and trying to leap across the Grand Canyon. Some people might get further than others. There might be nicer people in the world than you are or me. Nobody's going to jump that. That's the bad news. But the good news is, you know all the message of Easter? The message of Jesus' death and resurrection is that he has built a bridge 
built a bridge shaped like a cross across that grim canyon that you can come back to him. I wonder, uh, can you sense Jesus seeking you this morning on, on something? Maybe it's that very first step. It's that sense of, you know what, I, I feel God is, is seeking me. I feel he's, he's pulling me at something. He, maybe it's that first step to become a Christian. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you, you see God seeking you about another thing. Maybe it's uh, to, to make that step of being baptized. Uh, maybe it's to become a member of this church. Or maybe it's to, to serve him in a way that you've never tried before. If you're resisting it, that, well, the message from Paul would be stop running, stop resisting, be found by God. You know, Saul ended up being God's chosen instrument and following God wouldn't be easy. He gets shipwrecked, he gets beaten, he gets arrested. You know, being a Christian is not an easy thing. Years of persecution that he, he had. But man, if you read about what his letters in the New Testament about how he is so delighted, he's so glad, he, it's a choice he never would have gone back on. He knew that he had a joy that it didn't depend on whether or not he was rich or poor or, or healthy or not healthy. He found a joy when he met Jesus. And you can find that too. Joy, I don't mean a joy in a sort of, hey, life's always great, but some sort of deep conviction that, you know what, I've got God no matter what life is like. So that's the oxymoron we've unpacked today that actually a holy God and a wicked sinner, even like us, in the kingdom of God, God can bring those two things together and make an unstoppable team, something that can change the world. When I say team, I mean, God is the boss, you know what I mean? God's the coach, God's the, the main guy, but do you know what I mean? He can bring it together and that's why you've been created in this world. I wonder if you would like to be found by God. I'm going to pray and then uh, sing our final song. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us, Jesus, that you would come into our lives and help us to know what it is you're saying. Lord, are you seeking us? We can sense something. Lord, what is it you want to say to us? Maybe for those of us who have never become a Christian, never made that step. And if that's you, if you're here today and you'd like to make that step, all you need to do is just say to God that you admit that you've missed the mark, admit sin, but then you can just accept the free forgiveness of Jesus and ask him to come into your life. And for anyone else, you know, seeking God today, who can, well, you can feel God seeking them. Lord, we pray that all of us would be found by you in whichever way you're seeking us. We pray that we'd be found and that you would change the world through us for your sake and for your fame. Amen. If anyone wants to talk about anything we've uh, said today, do uh, grab me at the end. Um, we'd be happy to talk to you. But uh, we're going to sing uh, Our God is an Awesome God. Uh, it's number 453. Um, and uh, thank you, cheers. 453, Our God is an Awesome God. We'll sing it through a few times because it's quite a short song. Um, and uh, we'll follow Catherine on the clarinet to sing. So if you can stand and sing, Our God is an Awesome God.